Hello and welcome once again to Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code on this brand new show. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hi. Fernando. Hello, hello. And Johnny. Hey everyone. So first off, Johnny, can you tell us a bit more about your pain points going between different versions of Xcode and keeping your code compatible? Yeah, so this is a topic that I was thinking a lot about, especially during this time of year for developers. It's a really exciting but busy time, right? Because we, we go into July, um, watch, the, watch the WWDC keynote, and there are so many cool features that we're like looking forward to working on and excited to use. Uh, and then late August rolls around and you realize, oh, wow, I should actually probably put those features into my app if I want to, you know, get them in at the time of the release. And obviously this is, um, you know, more, you know, if you're if you're releasing on a more regular schedule, then um if you're releasing on a, on a more regular schedule, then this is you, you want to meet these deadlines, right? So uh, in order to use the new APIs, you generally have to do those on an Xcode beta. Um, but if you still want to be able to release versions of your app previous to, um, previous to the actual release of iOS 14, then you will need to um, make sure that your code compiles on both Xcode 11 and Xcode 12. Um, which is, is, is sort of annoying as, as a developer because you get so excited to use these features. You start uh, submitting new versions of your app to, to test flight. Um, but if you actually want to make like a production build and put it in the app store, you still have to be able to, to build an archive with Xcode 11. Um, so Apple has, has provided a way for us to, uh, to sort of deal with these two situations. Um, first off, they have the availability condition. Uh, then anytime you want to use an API that is not um, that does not exist, or I guess that is that is only available in iOS 14, uh, you have an availability condition, which is usually prefixed by just like an if pound available. You put in the platform name, the version number, and then an asterisk. Um, and it's really nice because the compiler will usually tell you if you need that if your app supports previous versions uh, of iOS, then it will warn you and tell you that you need an availability condition. Um, the problem is, is that if you're working on Xcode 12, the compiler thinks that the API exists and doesn't have any issues with it. Um, so one thing that you'll have to remember that won't necessarily be caught by the debugger is that you're using the correct, that you put a, a compiler check on it. Um, which this one's the the syntax for it is is somewhat similar, but you begin with the pound, and then uh, if compiler, and then check the compiler version. Which, if you're building, if you're using any APIs that are for iOS 14 only, the compiler version is 5.3. So you will need to add a compiler flag, um, in order to sort of get your build to ignore all of that code that you added that's only available in Xcode 12 um, so that it's ignored in Xcode 11. Anyway, I hope I'm, I hope I'm explaining myself, but this is one thing that we have to learn uh, as we get into this time of like using betas is that if you actually want to continually push out new, new versions of your app in this period in between you know, betas and whatnot, 
before the actual release of iOS 14, you'll need to add compiler checks as well as availability conditions for the version uh, if you want your, your app to, to, to still be able to release your app. When do you do cleanup for, for, the, for all of that? Like if you go through the whole process, you release the app, when do you go back and remove all the compiler checks? Yeah, so as soon as the gold master for Xcode 12 is available, we can remove all of the all of the checks mm. because then we can all officially move on to Xcode 12. And really, it's just a it's a rule, I, I, some arbitrary rule that Apple has that you can't well you can't release a build that's been archived by Xcode 12 because then it would have all of the APIs within it that are not actually available, right? So you know we're adding a bunch of widgets to day one. And we want people to actually test those out before, um, you know, before we actually release the version. So we have to compile with a non-gold master of Xcode 12. And you can put those up in test flight, um, but we, would, we wouldn't actually be able to release those as, as actual builds. Any build that you want to release still needs to be compiled by a gold master version of Xcode, which at this point is 11.6, I think. Um, so yeah, so you kind of have to work in both Xcode lands if you if you want to both have test flights for iOS 14, but still want to be able to release for iOS 13 or previous. This problem is actually kind of exasperated by uh, doing Mac development as well, because oftentimes you have to release back several years worth of Mac yeah. versions, um, and you have to maintain compatibility all throughout. Um, now, this is usually fine if you're just on the latest Xcode on your development machine, but as soon as you need a test on an older Mac OS, you might have extra Mac minis laying around or a VM, uh, then uh, it's a little bit difficult because you can't just deploy to an older version of the operating system and debug that. Like with Xcode, you can always plug in an older device and you have the full debugger available to you uh, for iOS. But for macOS, you actually have to go and put Xcode on that older uh, computer, which can be a little bit difficult. Now, one thing that does work um, that I've, I've used quite a bit is to compile your app using the latest and greatest, bring it over along with your code to an older version of the OS, uh, and then you can debug it there and still get line-by-line -line debugging, even though that version of Xcode has no clue how to compile it because you can't always have... Uh, like those compiler checks, especially if you're not using Swift uh, and you're down to Objective-C. So instead of having code that's just not compiled, because it is compiled into the program, that's what gets you the behavior that you're seeing. It's just you're skipping over that part at runtime. Uh, so those are things that you can do on the macOS side as well. Spencer, have you used these availability checks at all? Yeah, I have. Um, I've been working on kind of a, a personal side project for... Um, uh, sort of this, um, this, uh, I guess you'd call it like a home audio amplifier and it's, it's a vapor app, but I wanted to run it on uh, a raspberry Pi specifically cause I didn't want to use my only Mac mini just to really control one thing. It uses a serial port to kind of communicate to the amp. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, make it be able to communicate and I could just make an, uh, an iOS app and control it that way. The problem is um, the the first library that I used um, to try to kind of interface with um, with the serial connection uh, was an open source uh, library called Swift Serial, and it's meant for both 
you know, iOS and, and Linux. And that's kind of why I chose it over probably the better like solution of like ORS serial port. Uh, but it's only, um, it's only a Mac OS, uh, compatible library at this time. So in there, I, I was trying to mess around with a few of the different ways that it was connecting to the serial port. And in there, it does things like that, where it says, Hey, if the, um, if the operating system is uh, Mac OS, you can use these, um, these arguments or these flags, uh, to set up the file descriptor. Otherwise, you know, use a couple different ones in order to make it compatible both ways. So um, it, it's definitely something that um, I think we should all, you know, know how to use. And uh, I think it's interesting, Johnny, that you brought up both not just using the, you know, if available for like a version of Mac OS or something, but even checking down to the compiler and saying like, does, you know, we, we should probably also check those as well in certain situations. So um, definitely something that if you haven't seen it come up, it will likely come up sometime for you in many different places. Uh, so, uh, Dimitri, uh, kind of on the topic of Vapor, um, were you going to talk about sort of your your experience with using Swift for web development? I don't know if it was specifically about Vapor, but um, kind of in that realm, more or less? Yeah, so I've actually been doing a lot of Swift development on the server, um, and uh, a few. I wanted to talk about those experiences because I think it's pertinent to a lot of uh, developers nowadays that know Swift and want to maybe get into server development, um, but they don't necessarily know what kind of steps they can take to uh, get in. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, one thing that I started with uh, was uh, John Sedell's Publish uh, framework, which is a static site generator uh, for, um, for Swift websites that basically will turn a bunch of markdown files and resources into a full-fledged website that you can then go ahead and publish uh, anywhere you want. Uh, So uh, this framework is very easy to use, and it's uh, it's very very much built for Swift users. Uh, So basically, you can go ahead and directly modify the themes. You can generate HTML using Swift code uh, directly, so you don't have to uh, have as much guesswork with how to structure your nodes and things like that. Um, And you can reuse components very easily across multiple different pages or in different situations. Um, It's kind of a shame that you can't do the same with like CSS. You still have to manually write CSS. So uh, you still need to know about how websites are put together to be able to use something like this. Uh, But it definitely makes it much simpler. Now something that I went ahead and did uh, is I'm also going ahead and using GitHub Actions to actually deploy um, our site every time we uh, put up a pull request and that pull request gets merged, it actually does get merged directly. Uh, it does, uh, GitHub will go ahead and download um, our, our site's code. It will download publish, it will compile everything, and it will generate everything and put it in a completely different repo that is then served using GitHub pages. So that's how codecompletion.io is actually put together. Um, we just modify a few markdown files, submit a pull request, and then uh, that Swift code will get uh, run on the background. Now, like that's only one side of uh, web development, like making a website, but there's also the side where you wanna make more uh, in-depth APIs uh, to be able to do more complex things, and that's where Vapor really comes in. So Vapor is a, frame- is a web framework uh, that allows you to set up an API, essentially, um, with various routes, uh, where uh, if you've ever consumed an API, you know that you can just go ahead and access 
uh, certain URLs and things will happen whether you send information to it or you're just retrieving. Um, all of that information is directly available. Uh, so using Vapor, you can use quite literally the same model code that you're using in your app uh, directly on the server, um, and that is quite uh, fun to use. Uh, now, unfortunately, that comes with some new APIs that you probably never used, and that includes promises and futures, um, and those are quite uh, complicated uh, to get just right. Uh, so Spencer, I know you've been doing uh, some Vapor development for quite a while, and even before Vapor 4, so uh, what are your thoughts on a lot of these technologies? Yeah, um, server-side Swift development just in general has always been something that I've, I've really loved. I've always loved the idea of it, and I began learning Vapor. It was uh, probably a few months after Vapor 3 came out. Um, it, I just think it's a really fun thing that we are able to, as iOS or macOS developers, we can also go on the side of the server and build a backend for us, and we don't have to use a service like uh, Firebase or uh, some, even CloudKit, I suppose, although I think CloudKit's a lot better than Firebase, uh, we don't have to be necessarily limited to the functionalities that they have, but then we can kind of jump over and, like you said, uh, have a lot more kind of flexibility and be able to literally write any routes that we want, have any custom uh, integrations. Um, Built-in is support for Things like uh, having a SQLite, MySQL database, Postgres, I think they're adding uh, MongoDB. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of developments within Vapor that are making it very powerful. You can uh, you know, send things to Amazon S3, and because it's all open source, anyone can kind of contribute middleware or other libraries that will kind of uh, extend the functionality of it. And it's been something that I've made a couple Vapor projects for my job at Lambda School. Like if one of the APIs that we use, one of the public APIs we use goes down, then I've got a backup. Um, and just it's really kind of an exciting thing as an app developer to also be able to kind of go more full stack, if you kind of want to use that term, of also building your backend as well. And the best part is we're using Swift. There's not another language that you have to use. You don't have to use, you know, JavaScript and the one million different, you know, libraries and dependencies they use, and they seem to switch every other month or so. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's a really exciting thing. Um, I mean, the more I can use Swift, the better, basically, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's not just Swift. Like, being able to use Xcode in that sort of environment Absolutely. is Absolutely. tremendously beneficial. So. A lot of develop, uh, web developers uh, do have tools to go ahead and debug and uh, rate the performance of their web applications, um, but not many developers actually know how to use those tools because they're, frankly, hard to use. Um, mm -hmm. It's often a lot of setup to get just right, and you can't just uh, go ahead and use them on a running instance. It's a, it's a lot of work to get it uh, going. Now, the nice thing about Vapor is it's quite literally a Swift package that you have your your whole site is a swift package that you can then go ahead and run in xcode this includes breakpoints you want to know when your route gets hit you just go ahead and uh, set a breakpoint on that route uh, and everything will stop at that point and you can go ahead and inspect everything you can go ahead and manipulate how your code is running um, and manipulate the internal state of your application just by changing things in xcode so if you have your app and your uh, server running side by side in two Xcode projects that is tremendously beneficial uh, mm -hmm. for the whole process of development 
uh, because you can get up and running that much quicker. Uh, <laughs> one more uh, thing that is important to think about when using Vapor, so although it is uh, quite performant even right now uh, to the point where not it's, it won't be the first choice for many web development projects uh, because it is not necessarily uh, something that's traditionally been uh, the language of choice for doing web development. Um, so uh, something you do need to keep in mind is that it's not complete. There are missing pieces that uh, might be like uh, might be the downfall to the project that you're working in. So for instance, uh, it can't stream files. So if you wanted to write a, a video streaming site, you just won't be able to do it with Vapor. It won't support things like HLS. Uh, that said, uh, because it is all in Swift, and because you have Xcode, you can set a breakpoint at any point and see how Vapor works, which is tremendously useful when you want to go ahead and jump in and hack together uh, the framework so that way you can go ahead and do more interesting things. Um, so uh, Spencer, I know you uh, submitted a PR uh, for Vapor directly, and it was as easy as finding an issue that someone had uh, and adding that missing functionality. Sometimes. No one has the time to just add it. Uh, so if you do have the time, you can just jump in and add something really simple. Um, I myself have added a few things uh, to Vapor as well. Uh, and these were direct needs that I needed for, uh, for work. Like I needed uh, the ability to connect directly to a Unix socket. And that wasn't in Vapor, but it was part of Swift Neo. Uh, so I was able to just plug in that functionality. It was a few lines uh, and then some cleanup to write tests and things like that. Uh, so that is another benefit that if you are just getting started in uh, this industry and you want to uh, get a bit more experience, you, there are open source projects like this where you can just jump in uh, and you can go ahead and add uh, functionality and be part of a community that uh, can help get you um, more opportunities in the future. Yeah, it was a really cool uh, thing. Like, Dimitri was kind of really the one that pushed me to do it, and I'm really glad that he did. Um, I One of us, I can't remember who, I think it was Dimitri, just looked on, you know, the issues page of Vapor's repo on GitHub and said, oh, hey, this is like a super quick fix. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll go ahead and do that. I literally added the app discardable result attribute to a function, and that was it. It was a single part of a line of code uh, but it was something that like someone found annoying. And even just last night, I was actually working on a Vapor app myself. Um, and it, it's, there's, you can actually have the Vapor app perform requests, you know, to an, another API, for example. And the way that we did that was, um, or the way that you do that is you've kind of got two options. You have a very simple one. You say, go to this URI and that's it. Or you have one that says, go to this URI, here are some headers and kind of a, a pre-closure uh, for setup. And I was like, well, I just want headers. I don't want to do that that closure. So I'm going to submit a pull request here in the next day or two to just try to kind of have an in-between there. And it's really not hard. And I think, like Dimitri said, the key there is you don't have to do anything crazy uh, to you know, uh, submit a pull request, you don't have to make this amazing feature, but it can be really simple. Uh, and, you know, just getting used to that process of submitting pull requests in the way that they kind of want it to be, uh, you know, the whole code contribution generally is going to be some contribution document. That's a really cool thing to do. Um, 
I mean, if anything, you can say that you've you contributed to an open source project and that could look good on resumes. And if anything, just for your own satisfaction of like, hey, you know what? I am contributing to the community. That's, you know, that's a cool thing. And I'm, I'm planning on kind of doing that more and more for sure. Hello. And we can hear Fernando's you now. back. Yes. <laughs> I am back. Do you have any thoughts Welcome on back. all this, Fernando? Yeah. No. Keep going. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Yeah, so no, uh, it's a it's a really really interesting topic to me. I've been following it, I think since Vapor came out, because I always like uh, telling people that my favorite repo is actually uh, Robbie Hansen's Cocoa HTTP server, because when I discovered it, it was like it totally blew my mind that he was doing web stuff uh, on Objective C. At the moment, mm-hmm. we didn't have Swift when I discovered it, or it was basically very, very new. So it was really, really amazing. Like, I, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm... How can I put this in a way that doesn't make me look bad? I hate learning other languages. <laughs> so when I discovered that I could, like, I could do everything in Objective-C, like everything I wanted, of course, which was iPhone, Mac OS, and web on Objective-C, I was like, wow, this is, like, this is seven. And then Vapor came out, which which was pretty good. Swift is amazing, uh, but yeah, I've been following it for a long, long time, and I think I'm, in general, I'm very, very excited about the possibilities of this. Like we're just getting started, and I can mm-hmm. definitely see uh, positions in maybe five or ten years where it's like we have a backend based on Vapor, like come and work for us. So I think that's that's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what I'm building at my job job. I'm building a, an entire backend infrastructure using Vapor, um, and mostly nice. for the performance benefits, uh, because it is a compiled language that when you build in a release mode, Swift is fast. Um, so Swift is slow in debug mode because it has to go ahead and double check everything and make sure that you're not doing anything silly. Uh, but in release mode, it kind of removes a lot of those checks in the optimization phase, uh, so it gets a lot faster as a result, which is... I'm really nice. curious as to how you you managed to do that. Like, actually Man. selling the project or selling the fact that you could do the backend on Vapor. Like, can you give me any well, insight on that? that? That's a topic for another time, unfortunately. <laughs> that makes sense. I think episode four, yeah, I, I'll, I'll bring it up as my topic then. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, so Spencer, uh, you were talking about uh, like getting re- getting started as a junior developer um, and uh, d- contributing to open source projects. Um, but there's another aspect to being a junior developer and getting started, and that is tutorial hell. Uh, can you talk a bit about this? Yeah, this is something that in my day to day job as an instructor, um, I-, I see this all the time and. I just remember being in this similar situation as these students that I'm teaching right now where um, it doesn't happen to all of them for sure, but I, what I will see and what I'll kind of see as a uh, somewhat common, I suppose, situation is you've got this person that wants to learn programming. They try to do it on their own for a while from anywhere from a few months to even a few years. Uh, and for whatever reason, you know, they, they can't do it themselves and that's not any fault of their own, but there's this concept of tutorial hell, which is like, 
I am going to try to do this on my own. I'm going to, you know, follow this tutorial from maybe Ray Wenderlich or whoever. It doesn't really matter where it's from, but it's some tutorial to learn X thing, like how to perform a segue or how to set up a table view or whatever it is. And the issue is the sort of the hellish part of it is once you finish the tutorial, you're like, sweet, I feel awesome about this. Where do I go from here? Right. And it's sort of this, how do I progress to, from the next step of like, okay, I finished this. How do I feel comfortable with doing this and implementing it in maybe a different way or into my own code? That's where I think this gap uh, is just really hard to get past and something that, you know, is on my mind all the time as an instructor, like what is the best way to get past that? And I think something that I've seen both from personal experience and uh, through kind of the lives of these students is one, you just have to write code. You have to be doing something and try things out and, and in maybe different ways or in, um, putting it in a different project to see, okay, well, what are the similarities where when I put it in this project and this project, how it looks the same or different or whatever. Um, I also was talking to a student about this last week and I thought, you know what? Um, I remember trying to do this even with vapor. I know this is like <laughs> the main topic of the day is vapor, but um, I, when I was trying to learn vapor back in vapor three, I was following tutorials, but it doesn't really give you enough. And so what I did was I bought a book on Vapor, and then that gives you a much more sort of complete knowledge of the subject rather than here is the step-by-step -step guide, but it's more of like, okay, let's go through all of these things, but you also get a more sort of in-depth amount of knowledge rather than the shallow, this is how you do this one thing, and then it becomes something where you're like, okay, because I know this, it can be applied in all of these different situations. Um, so those are kind of my thoughts on, you know, how do you get that more complete rounded out knowledge? Um, I'm wondering if, if you guys have any thoughts on like things that help you or things that um, maybe you would recommend to people on how do you get out of this tutorial hell as maybe a beginner or even as, you know, uh, developers with all of the experience levels that we have. Um, Johnny, do you have any ideas? Yeah, so um, you bring up an interesting point because I definitely felt uh, when I first started development, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm all about the tutorials, like Ray Wenderlich yeah, totally. or whatever. Like, I, you know, I can learn whatever I want. Um, but then when it came to actually implementing it in, into a commercial app, it was like, well, yeah, if I was starting a project from scratch, like, sure. Exactly. But, like, I'm trying to insert this one feature into this project that has millions of lines of code. Like where in the world do I even put this? And I think the biggest thing um, going along with what you said about buying the vapor book is learn how to read documentation, like learn how to read Apple's official documentation, mm -hmm. because there's sort of the application aspect of, of a feature or something that you want to add, the, the application aspect of an API and then there's sort of like, what are the principles of, of how to use this? And that's all totally. found in the documentation. Like if you can get really, really good at, at reading and understanding documentation and then actually like writing the code, that's when you're, that's when you'll really start to learn things. I mean, when I was a student, uh, I remember opening up Apple's documentation and I didn't understand like a single word of what I was reading. 
And so totally, I always totally. wanted to go to the tutorials because I was like, oh, this application of it makes much more sense. But the more that you can learn to turn to documentation and learn to understand it is when you're going to like really just explode and be able to like do a ton of different things. Yeah, that's I think that's an such an interesting thing. Oh, sorry. Go for it, Dimitri. Uh, so, like, when I was just starting to learn how to program, and this was with Perl, so this was not with uh, Swift, because Swift was not a thing, uh, and I didn't know Objective-C was a thing at the time, um, and I just had a book on Perl, so I, I ran with it. Um, it came with, like, four or five big projects that it would have you build, hand, like, hand-holding style, um, mm -hmm. and that's, that's how I got started programming. Now, I was stuck for the longest time after that because all I knew were those four or five different projects. I, I took one of them, it was a hangman game, and I like, improved upon it, um, but I didn't have enough knowledge to kind of jump onto my own uh, idea from that point forward. I had great ambitions, I tried, and I was like, okay, I don't know where to, like, what's my next step? Um, I mm. think at that point, what really helped me were those recipe style books. So these are books that uh, kind of will just take one page and tell you about uh, how to do something. Something quick, something easy, something a few lines of code. Uh, and it usually gives you a little, uh, an image that shows you what the results are from doing that sort of thing. Um, and that kind of allowed me to have a quick uh, encyclopedia, if you will, uh, that you can just look up, oh, I want to do this thing. Visually, you look for the thing you want to do. Uh, and then you can implement it without really understanding. And I think... The key piece when you're just starting out is you don't need to understand. You just need to have as mm -hmm. much exposure to as many different styles and ways of doing things that it just starts becoming natural without necessarily understanding why it's becoming, like why it works. Like we all use computers and none of us, maybe Andrew, which we all know, but none of us are electrical engineers. We have no clue right. how the transistors work inside the computer. It's a black box to us. But we know how to manipulate the computer to do interesting things, which is what software is. So not necessarily having a complete understanding of something doesn't mean that you won't be able to use it. Oftentimes, you'll be able to use it perfectly well. I mean, speakers of English, uh, which all of us are, uh, we don't necessarily know how the language works unless we took a course on linguistics. And even then, you are amazed that we are able to speak at all. Uh, after learning <laughs> how the language works in various different ways, we just absorb it naturally, and that's how our brains work. So uh, you can use that same technique for learning code and learning many different things. And then once you have a significant amount of, quote-unquote, natural knowledge of something, you're able to just use it when you want to use it, then you can go back and start understanding why those things work. Um, and that can really reinforce what you've learned uh, and allow you to see new possibilities that you may not have seen up until then. So you can kind of stop right before that point and you'll be fine. But if you do go back and reinforce everything and understand the why, then I think you're in a much better position to absorb that information because you wouldn't have absorbed it at the beginning. Uh, and you're in a much better position to use that new information to make new and interesting things. Fernando, what do you think? I I think I think Johnny, uh, there's been I've been working on a project for a little while, just a little while, uh, basically since I maybe a month or two, um, which is exactly what Johnny said. Which is, I go through the tutorials, uh, I think I know what I'm doing, and then I get to work, and then it's never all right. Just build a new app, build a new mm -hmm. module, build a new thing. It's never like that. 
you either you're either super duper lucky where you go into a brand new job that's going to be very risky if they're building something new or mm-hmm. it's mid level to higher level uh higher higher, higher uh, mid to big sized companies where you go in into an existing code base and fix things right and sure eventually if you uh, earn enough trust you get into building features but most of the time it's actually go and fix this go and change this small thing and it's really really difficult to to get into it so what i've been thinking is uh this is part of my book which i won't expand i'll i'll make my my topic next time but it's a, a really interesting thing to go into ah, i keep rambling sorry <laughs> if you go into github and try and find open sourced projects preferably MIT license and digest their code eventually you'll run into uh, issues with that code they don't do this right they don't do that right so what i'm trying to do is i'm picking up those pieces small pieces of huge projects like issues on github and i'm trying to build them out uh refactor them make them right and then i'm package, packaging that up as a single lesson i don't know if that makes sense so mm-hmm. it's not exactly like a tutorial it's like go and fix this and once you think it's fixed go and check the solution and i think that's uh, i think that's that's going to be valuable but uh yeah i think i think it's going to be an interesting thing but we can discuss it later i guess not a problem so this week's episode of Code Completion is once again brought to you by Hungry. So Hungry, that's Hungry with three U's, is the iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch app you turn to when you really want to eat but are blinded by the multitude of choices available to you and your insatiable hunger. Hungry isn't here to help you discover new restaurants or flavors. No, it has a much more humble purpose. You tell it all about your favorite restaurants, and it will deploy its cryptographically advanced random number generator invoked by shaking your phone in frustration to make the decision of what to eat for you. Stuck at home in quarantine and sick of ordering pizza? Use Hungry. Did Hungry just suggest pizza again? Don't fret, as options for another cuisine, a cheaper option, something closer, or simply another option are just a button away. Hungry also comes with a collection of fun animated iMessage stickers so you can share your hunger with others. Thanks again to Hungry for sponsoring our show. Search for Hungry, that's H-U-U-U-N-G-R-Y, on the App Store today to give it a try. So now that we're done uh, with all of our topics, it's time for Complete the Code, where we quiz our listeners on your knowledge of Swift, Apple, and all things development. So on last week's episode, uh, we asked you uh, what was wrong with a particular piece of code that had an NS string. Um, so uh, one of our listeners wrote in, David Wright, and he uh, basically outlined it very uh, quite perfectly. So basically, if you use uh, NSLog, sorry, I meant to say NSLog before, but I said NSString. Uh, but if you use NSLog uh, and you pass in a format string, you need to be very careful that that format string does not include uh, extra variables that might include uh, extra tokens. So a token is anything with that percent uh, character in front of it. Um, so by using string interpolation here, we are actually including another token uh, by accident, potentially, if the name happens to have a percent character in it. So if we have France Ferdinand, but France, right in front of it, there's a percent character, uh, then that will kind of steal the variable that's part of our format string, uh, and it will incorporate it there rather than within the age uh, portion of it. 
Um, so that's something you really need to be careful whenever you are using NSLog and format strings in general. Don't just use variables as your format uh, string itself unless you know that it's going to have exactly the right amount of tokens. So never accept random user input. Otherwise, you're going to have a Bobby Table situation on your hands if you read the XKCD uh, comic. Uh, so once again, uh, thank you for David. Thank you to David Wright for uh, writing in their answer. Uh, and I think one thing they said at the end, which was quite funny, so I'll read it out, uh, was that while it is highly unlikely that a person's name has a percent symbol in it, let's not wait for Elon Musk to prove us wrong. So <laughs> I thought that was the cherry on top of the answer. So uh, thank you once again for writing that in. So for this week's prompt, uh, we have the following code. So I want you to review it uh, and uh, tell us why might some developers discourage the pattern that we're uh, going to explore below? So in a class conforming to UI table view data source, we have a method that returns a cell for a given index path. Since our cell is a custom cell type that we call date cell, we use a guard statement to dequeue a cell with identifier date cell and add a given index path, then optionally cast it to our custom type. If this cast fails for whatever reason, we simply return a newly initialized date cell uh, and we're done. Uh, but assuming our cell was successfully casted, uh, we then assign its date property to the entry in a dates array uh, corresponding to the index path row, then return the cell. So there's something that a senior developer might uh, raise a red flag there. Uh, so uh, go ahead and let us know what that something is, how you might go ahead and fix it, um, and uh, be sure to use the hashtag complete the code on Twitter and the first person to write in uh, will get a shout out on the show. Um, and once again, uh, our DMs are open on Twitter, so be sure to uh, let us know if you have a quiz of your own that you'd like to share with our audience, and we'd be more than happy to uh, have it on the show. So with all of that out of the way, it's time for compiler error. So this is a segment where I get to test my fellow completionists uh, knowledge about Swift, Apple, and all things development. So let's go ahead and get started. Now I do have a theme uh, for today, um, and that theme is obscure Apple. Uh, not obscure Apple. That was last year, last week's. I was about to say last month. Uh, our theme <laughs> for today uh, is uh, programming languages that Apple has used over the years. So let me go ahead and bring over. Uh, the four statements for this week. So we have the first one, Swift started its development as far back as 2010 as an evolution of the work Apple was already doing, improving the Objective-C language with features like automatic reference counting, zeroing weak references, and blocks. So statement number two, available since the very first release of Mac OS X, Java bindings to Cocoa called the Java Bridge were available to help bring new developers to the fledgling operating system all the way through Mac OS 10, 10.4, um, which was the first release to introduce many new APIs not included in the Java bindings. Statement number three, now at version 4.0, Objective-C was originally invented in 1984 by Brad Cox, and production versions did not even have a concept of manual reference counting as a part of the main runtime or in foundation kit even in Next Step 3.0. And statement number four, Classcal was a language Apple developed for the Lisa Workshop development system as a version of Pascal with object-oriented features and was supported in all versions of classic macOS as a way to make apps using the Mac app framework also written in Classcal. 
So uh, three of those statements are code completions, and one of them is a compiler error. Uh, Spencer, I see you smiling, so that means you must want to go first. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no. Uh, the, the fact is, I have no idea on any of these things. Um, <laughs> my, my knowledge of even Objective-C is uh, <laughs> not what it should be, much less predating Objective-C. Um, so as far as this goes, uh, I wish we had like a phone a friend, in which case I would maybe uh, phone Andrew Madsen because he would definitely know all about any of this stuff here. Um, I'm going to say, so my first thought is, this could be totally off. Uh, I'm kind of thinking that the, um, the number two, the Java binding sounds like something I've heard of before. Uh, you know, again, it could be something similar, like it was actually 10.3 that, uh, the first release, uh, happened where there were new APIs. Um, I'm... I I think I'm leaning towards either one or four. Um, Swift definitely could have started back as far as 2010. Um, I I don't know, you know, uh, <laughs> but um, and then as far as Classical goes, like that's just a total shot in the dark for me. So I have no <laughs> clue. <laughs> um, I've never heard of it, so I'm going to say that number four is. Um, is the compiler error, but again, that's that's a total guess on my part here. Great picking. So let's go with Johnny next. Yeah, uh, kind of same logic as, as Spencer. I, I'm not 100% sure, but number four, I, I just never heard of Classcal, but I also realized that, um, that I'm also not that old, and so it's possible that that was a language that was widely used a long time ago. I don't... So, yeah, I'll go with number four. Okay. Fernando? ECPC. It's number three. Number Ooh. three. Yes. Do you have any reason why? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I okay. I mean, I think <laughs> I, I'm very, very confident that we are not uh, in version 4.0 of Objective-C. At the very latest, we're at 2.1, but I'm pretty sure it's 2.0. Okay, so let's take these in order. Uh, so Swift started its development as far back as 2010 as an evolution of the work Apple started doing uh, already improving Objective-C. Um, and that's actually why they started making Swift, because they were making in incremental improvements to Objective-C over the years. Uh, and as those improvements piled up, it was kind of better to start a new language rather than continually uh, putting work into them. Uh, and Swift actually had its birthday not too long ago. I forget the exact date, but Chris Latner uh, did go out and say that uh, Swift, uh, he is one of the only people that can claim more than uh, five to six years of Swift experience uh, because it was indeed started as far back as 2010. So that July, is... July 17, 2010. Yep, so that is indeed wow. a code completion. Uh, now for the next statement, uh, we have available since the very first release of Mac OS X, Java bindings to Cocoa called the Java Bridge were available to help uh, bring new developers to the platform, uh, but they were discontinued as uh, early as 10.4. So it wasn't discontinued at that point, but new APIs were introduced to Cocoa that just were not available uh, via the Java Bridge. 
Um, and uh, that is also a code completion. So uh, Apple not only had a Java bridge, they also had a Ruby bridge um, that was included for a few years um, as Ruby on Rails kind of uh, was becoming more popular. Um, and then that one was also uh, kind of sunset as soon as Swift kind of became popular. Uh, so Swift kind of took over, and maybe we'll lose Objective-C bindings to the Objective-C frameworks one day. One day. <laughs> uh, so that leads into Objective-C, which now at version 4.0, uh, it was originally invented in the, in 1984, um, and it did not actually have manual reference counting uh, even in Next Step 3, which I found super fascinating. So Fernando, you you had. Um, some doubts as far as what version the language was, and Apple has stopped uh, sharing the marketing versions over the years, but the runtime is in fact at version 4.0. Uh, so if you can go ahead and download the runtime from Apple's uh, open source project, and it's written in C++ and C, uh, and Objective-C, all three of those, um, and uh, you can go ahead and explore that uh, to uh, the fullest, if you'd like, but Objective-C is, in fact, at version 4.0. It's had a few more iterations since the 2.0 days, uh, especially automatic reference counting and things like that, uh, and zeroing weak references. So that points to uh, number four being the compiler error, where Classcal was a language Apple did, in fact, develop for the Lisa Workshop development system, uh, and this was an object-oriented version of Pascal. However, uh, there is one problem uh, in that uh, Mac apps back then, you could make them using the Mac app framework, which was also written in Classcal, but it was ultimately dropped during the PowerPC transition in 1994, the last supported version being Mac OS 8.1. So uh, it did not uh, stay around for the entire classic Mac OS uh, era, uh, and it was dropped eventually, um, especially with Mac OS 9, which was the last uh, the last pillar of the classic macOS era. Um, so you were not able to run uh, Classical apps after that point, especially on PowerPC hardware. Uh, so great job, uh, everyone, at falling for uh, my tricks once again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what I find the most time. interesting... I know, right? What I find the most interesting is, as, as Fernando mentioned that, I was like, you know what? He's right. Objective-C definitely isn't at that, and I, I went to Wikipedia, and shockingly, Wikipedia lied to me. It said it was at version 2, so... So it's interesting. I, I, I my lesson I, here. <laughs> yeah, I did the exact same thing, and Dimitri is still right, because uh, Wikipedia is using 2.0, and that document, the source for that document comes from a, an Apple doc that was updated in 2009. Oh, okay. So if you go to the actual open source... I'll send I'll send the link and we can share it on our Twitter. Uh, you will see that uh, it's Objective C four. So I think that's, that's amazing. I learned yeah so they learned. Thank you, Dimitri. That's cool. Yeah. And it was amazingly hard to find that detail. I heard it in passing like <laughs> once upon a time on Slack, and I was like, oh, I might use that one day. Um, but I had to dig to really verify that because I was not sure. I checked Stack Overflow, and there were uh, there were messages that said, oh. Um, like it's uh, actually 2.0 and some people are saying oh as of this version it's actually this um, but there was no reference back to it so I, I really had to do a lot of digging to really find that out the um, official so that was GitHub 
says says version four. Is so, there an official go. GitHub? Yeah, I just linked it. Oh, interesting. So I, I downloaded it from Apple's uh, opensource.apple.com, which is not GitHub. <laughs> oh, it says yeah, n- yeah, yeah. Interesting. Oh yeah, uh, this is an unofficial mirror. Uh, unofficial mirror. Yeah, I got too excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, w- once again, I fooled you, but I look forward to next week where you might uh, make a comeback. It's uh, it's always going to be a matter of time until I start losing. Uh, episode after episode so i'm gonna uh, (laughs) enjoy my winning streak so far uh so with that i want to personally thank everyone for watching live and listening in this week um as always i want to also um uh i want to also thank uh our co-hosts this week uh for taking time especially after we couldn't necessarily record on time uh to still make it happen so that way we have an episode for everyone uh so we'll be streaming uh every friday hopefully uh, so be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion so that way you know uh, when new episodes go live uh, and get released. Uh, be sure to also sign up for our monthly newsletter at our website at codecompletion.io uh, where we'll recap the topics that we discussed. Um, and we actually shared one of the articles uh, that uh, was from our first episode where we discuss um, difficult data sources and uh, compositional layouts as an article. So. Uh, We'll be sharing those on Twitter and sharing those in our newsletter, so be sure to sign up for that um, if you want to learn more about what we talk about on the show. Uh, So with that, uh, I want to give my thanks to Fernando, who is at uh, From Junior to Senior on Twitter. Um, I want to thank Johnny, who is at Johnny D. Hicks on Twitter, and Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis on Twitter. And once again, my name is Dimitri, and you can find me at Dimitri Buñol. Uh, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks, guys. See ya. Bye, guys. <laughs>